0: Well, a good number here tonight. It's good to see you. You know, really, you can tell a little bit about the strength of a church. And I'm sorry about my voice. I don't know what's wrong with it. I haven't had much Dr. Pepper up here. Maybe that's it. I don't know. My uh, certain drink. But anyway, I've I've caught a little bit of something, I guess, affected. And I did unbutton this button, so if my tie gets crooked, I apologize uh, for all of that. I think my neck's getting fatter, too, so... My wife was helping me button it since this hand doesn't work good and she buttoned part of my flesh into that buttonhole. I said, (laughs) "Woman, Maybe that's the reason it's not working. Uh, Always look for someone to blame it on, right? You can tell a lot about the strength of a church um, by looking at her crowd on Sunday night and then a lot of churches Wednesday night and you do your midweek service on Thursday. And I remember a, a younger preacher asking us and asking me, because at Eastland, our auditorium was actually more full at night than it was in the morning because in the morning, uh, the children are in children's church. Uh, but at night, they're not in children's church. So when we had to expand and build an auditorium, someone said, well, you know, can't you just go to two services? I said, it doesn't help because we have more on Sunday night than we do on Sunday morning. And uh, a great crowd on Wednesday and I had a younger preacher one time. He asked me, he said, I want to know how you get that building full of people on Wednesday night. What do you do? I said, I don't do anything different. That's who they are. Is give them the credit. They have come to the place in their life when they just say, when the church doors are open, I'm going through them. Amen? Amen. And the Scripture says not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together. And it's just a wonderful thing. Isn't it great to see each other and greet each other? and and the smile, I, I, I love fellowship. I, I can't imagine what people are going to do when they get to heaven and they don't like the rest of God's people. It's going to be tough. <laughs> Someone says there will be a lot of people up there. How are we going to find each other? And I said, well, just close your eyes and listen. Where you, when you hear the most noise, go that direction. That's where I'm going to be. Now, wherever all the excitement is, uh, that's where I want to be. Well, let me thank you for a wonderful week and thank you for a generous love offering week. We just, whatever the Lord provides, but God's always taken very good care of us. We're embarrassed sometimes by His good care. Uh, but, you know, the Lord's not a debtor to anyone, is He? And certainly the wonderful crowd we had this morning and people that didn't know the Lord here. Um, and I want to thank you for your part in home missions. Uh, your pastors has mentioned that two or three times, but I don't know if you realize how far sometimes the influence of your church goes. At our home missions conference in January, we might have a hundred or more men and their wives going out to start churches, and they they don't know what they're going to face. And some of them are young and have never pastored, and just all sorts of things. And a story like yours is of such great help. And then they have needs; they need they need some finances, they need some folding chairs, they need. Songbooks, And, I mean, about everybody has a a need. You can count on your pastor standing up and addressing that need and uh, very carefully investing your home missions money. And I'm telling you, it's going to bring great returns because when you invest in young preachers and missionaries, you're not talking about addition. You're talking multiplication, and uh, that's a wonderful thing. And it's just great, and I want to commend you for that. And then for your support of Heartland Baptist Bible College. I'm not a stranger to colleges and seminaries. I've been in several. I was, I was taught in some of them, and I do teach every excuse me—every Wednesday morning at Heartland. And my normal week is to teach at Heartland on Wednesday morning. I get up at 4.30. I don't live in Oklahoma City, drive to the school, have a three-hour class that's over at 11.20, and then usually go to the airport and fly out someplace like I did here and then come back the next Monday afternoon uh, from that church and have Tuesday off and then get up early Wednesday morning and do that again. Now, that's retirement. (laughs) (laughs) Retirement for me has been from going to preaching two to three times a week to five to seven times a week. So anyway, the Lord has a strange sense of humor about that. And I'm excited about Brother O'Barrow coming for your missions conference. Uh, we are just part of that family. We've known them since their kids were just babies. And then I married his daughter and her husband a number of years ago, and they have two children. Um, but they have one of the strongest Filipino works in America. They run between five and 600, and it's just a great church, extremely strong missions program. And I'm telling you, Larry and Myrna, Oh, are going to bless your hearts. And so you can really look forward to that. Now, you've got to have lots of rice. Amen. If you make him go 24 hours without rice, he will die right here on your property. He's always telling me, we go get some flight lice. You know, he kind of likes to make jokes of that. And, of course, the Filipino, or Filipino people are happy uh, people, and we will be with him right before he comes here. We're going to be in California in his church, and then he's coming here. But once they come, I know you're going to fall in love with them and want them to come back again. You should never get anywhere close to San Diego uh, without going to their church. You get some real food out there. I mean, they've they've got the stuff. All right. Let me ask you to turn to the book of Romans. Chapter 1. I'm glad you're sending your pastor's wife as well. You know, the Scripture says they're one. Is that true? They become one. And uh, my wife travels with me all the time. Every now and then, she wears down on me a little, and she will stay home. And uh, preachers often ask me uh, when they're asking me to come, does Mrs. Hardy normally travel with you? I said, yes, sir. That's the reason I married her, so I could be with her. Mm -hmm. And by the way, I got my wife from Rochester. You might be interested in knowing that, uh, Peter, so... Don't follow an example too much. (laughs) You might get yourself in trouble uh, down the road. But thank you for sending his wife. Take care of your preacher. I'm going to tell you now, any war that ever takes place, if they can take out the commander, the battle is over. And the Bible says, smite the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. You think you got temptations? I'm just telling you, Satan throws everything at this man that he can find. Because if he takes one of you out, that's bad. But if he takes him out, he's going to take a whole lot of people out. So pray for him and, uh, and take care of him. And they, he and his wife need to go to these meetings. They need encouragement too. And so thank you. I want to thank you in their place. Book of Romans chapter 1. Before we read, I want to mention to you that for years, I think about the comparison. I have thought about the comparison of America... And Rome. Now, theologically speaking, America parallels Israel more than any other nation. It is amazing how much America parallels Israel. But God really did have this country founded for the purpose of propagating the gospel. If you go all the way back to Christopher Columbus, even in his diary, he said, I did not consult mathematics or navigation or anything looking for a new way to get to the Indies. He said, it was the Spirit of God that put in my heart to go that way. And I've, I've got some of those, I mean, verbatim copies of some of his writing about that. And then of course, when the pilgrims came, uh, still, and, of course, you're in this part of the country, especially in the more New England area you read on some of those uh, statues and things, what was in their heart and in their mind when they came. So theologically, uh, we parallel Israel. But now when you get to economics and politics, we parallel Rome. See, Rome was a republic, and we're a republic. We're not a democracy. We're a democratic people in certain respects, but we're a republic. And that's the way our government works. And we borrowed a lot from Rome. Our legal system borrows heavily from Rome. Of course, the Roman legal system was 1100 years in coming together. And it was the best, probably, in the world at that time. There was a time when Rome would be the most envied place to live, it was the most organized, much bounty it was plentiful and everything, Rome would have been the place on earth maybe that a lot of people would want to live. Rome was a powerful nation militarily. It was the superpower of its day. Rome did not fall from the outside by being invaded. I don't know that anyone could have taken Rome. Rome fell from the inside because the moral fiber of the people just disintegrated. Now, you already know that's a close parallel, don't you? Well, since I was wondering about this parallel between Rome and America, I thought, I wonder if anybody else thinks about that. So I Googled that. I discovered there were over 50 million hits comparing Rome and America. Isn't that something? 50 million Now, when we read in just a moment, I want you to do something for me. I want in your mind for you to take out the word Romans. I want you to put in its place Americans. We're going to begin reading in verse 18 and read to the end of the chapter. And I want to ask you as you read to ask yourself this question. Is there any verse here that we're reading that is not true Of America today. And you might say. Brother Hardy. Hasn't these things always been true of America? Absolutely not. They have not always been true of America. But we're coming to that state. Even now. So if you can. Let me ask you to stand in honor. Of the reading of the word of God. Not for me. I almost changed my message. When your pastor started talking about worship. Which is probably one of the closest subjects to my heart, because American Christians don't worship. And uh, I could spend the whole night right there. It's a wonderful thing. I'm glad, uh, you know, that he's your pastor, has uh, bought into that. Well, if you would follow along silently as I read audibly, I'll begin in verse 18, and you follow along in your Bible to the end of the chapter. Because that when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Professing themselves to be wise, they became fools, and changed the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like to corruptible men, and to birds and four-footed beasts and creeping things. Wherefore God also gave them up to uncleanness through the lusts of their own hearts." to dishonor their own bodies between themselves, who change the truth of God into a lie and worship and serve the creature more than the Creator, who is blessed forever. Amen. For this cause God gave them up into vile affections, for even their women did change a natural use into that which is against nature. Now, I want to stop for a moment here because I don't want to spend a lot of time on this, but I think you need to see it. Sometimes I hear people talking about what's happening in America morally, and they say, you know, these homosexuals and people with so-called alternate lifestyle are just taking us down the tubes. That's not true. I want you to notice in verse 23, it says, we're just talking about the, the, the regular people now, change the glory of God, you know, change the glory of the uncorruptible God into an image made like the corruptible man, birds, four-footed beasts. And look at verse 24, wherefore? What's fixing to happen in verse 24 is a result of what happened in verse 23. They are a result of our thinking and our own attitude towards holiness and godliness. Now look in verse 25. This is another thing they did. They not only changed God's glory, but it says, who changed the truth of God into a lie and worshiped and serve the creature more than the Creator who is blessed forever. For, and look, verse 26 follows that. For this Because God gave them up into vile affections. What we need to realize is, and I'm going to say this generically, we produced what we have in America because we ourselves didn't treat God like we should. We don't worship like we should. You know, worship is a voluntary humbling of one person to exalt another. Americans are proud people. And sometimes proud in the wrong way. And God resists the proud and gives grace to the humble. I don't know what there is about it. But it is very difficult to get many so-called Christians to get on their knees. My friend, if you're uncomfortable on your knees, you better check your salvation. Because Christ hung on the cross for us to have that. And I I tell you, it's a real comfortable position to be on your knees. Peter and I were praying this morning. And I might have even mentioned that. I said, Lord, it just feels good to humble myself before you. And, uh, and, and express, you know, who he is and what he is. Isn't that wonderful? Now let's move on down to verse 27. I just want to bring that point out. And likewise also the men leaving the natural use of the woman, burning their lust one toward another, men with men working that which is unseemly and receiving in themselves that recompense of their error which was meat. And it's all a result, again, of attitudes towards God. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, America is there. A great part of America wants to do everything they can to get even the knowledge that God exists out of our systems of education and every place they possibly can. There is a systematic effort uh, to do that. And because of that, God gave them over to a reprobate mind to do those things which are not convenient. Being filled, and let's look at this list here. Being, un, uh, being filled with all unrighteousness, fornication, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, debate, deceit, malignity, whispers. I haven't said one thing is not true here. Backbiters, haters of God, despiteful, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things, disobedient to parents, without understanding, covenant breakers, without natural affection. Oh, my goodness. My wife has mentioned how the ladies have changed over the last few decades. The ladies would hold such a a much stronger degree of purity than the men used to, but not anymore. And I'm noticing now every week where some mother gives birth and then kills the babies after they're born. The mother, the one who in years gone by would have given their life first. Before the babies could have been touched. The one who brought them into the world. Isn't it amazing? And it says. Without understanding. Come to break without natural affection. Implacable and merciful. And who knowing the judgment of God. That they which commit such things. Are worthy of death. Not only do the same. But have pleasure. In them that do them. I'm telling you sometimes. When people get out in debauchery and sin. They love everybody else that does the same. Let's pray. Now, Father, thank you for your goodness to us, and I thank you for this good number of people tonight and for this church, the pastor and his family. Grace and I just feel very at home in this place and comfortable because there's real people here. This pastor, his wife, they they love you, and they've come here when they could have gone to other places and made more money and maybe had a life easier because you put a burden in their heart. And I've listened to them talk, and they love these people so much. And what a wonderful thing it is to see a pastor that loves their people and a people that love their pastor. I look back on my 30 years at East Long Baptist Church and think, oh, Lord, how could it be more wonderful uh, than that? And I thank you for it. And I pray now, Holy Spirit, you would illumine our hearts and our minds to understand Bible truth. But then I pray that every single individual here tonight will contemplate Bible truth and align their life accordingly. We ask it in Jesus' name and for His sake. Amen. You may be seated. Now, Romans chapter 1 is sometimes referred to by some commentators as the slippery slope syndrome. In other words, whether it's mud or whether it's snow and ice, if you're on an incline or decline, uh, maybe there's a hump and you kind of cross over it and you get to the other side. Uh, If it's slippery and you start down, sometimes you cannot stop. And I remember one time in Missouri going out to a small town to preach and the weather had been horrible on Saturday night and through the night and there was sleet and there was snow and I was on Interstate 44 and came up over a hill. And the roads were just horrible, but I, I, didn't, I suppose they were still going to have services. And this is before cell phones. And when I came over the top, you could see a mess down at the bottom um, with some cars off and everything, and, and it was almost too late. I was able to control it. God was just good. you know what I mean? I was out of control myself. Didn't do any good, put on the brakes, whatever. In other words, I was going down because of the gravity And the momentum, it was just going. And so that's what they refer to here, that Rome, because of its immorality, had reached a tipping point and was now going down on the other side. There is a pretty good-selling book out called Tipping Point. You could even think about a seesaw, as we call them down south, where kids go to the park and you've got a kid on one end and a kid on the other, you know up and down like that, and, and depending on the weight and so forth. And, of course, you can change the leverage by moving the person closer uh, to that point, to that apex, and, and so there's a tipping point. If I had scales up here, we sometimes see scales when we're talking about uh, judgment and law and so forth because it's supposed to mean fair and, and balanced, but you know how it is. You can have those equal, and you, you can just put a grain of sand in one, but sooner or later you put that one grain and that's the tipping point, and then it goes like that. So all of you know that. Well, is there a place in chapter 1 where the tipping point is reached and now Rome is going is sliding down into immorality? I thought about that a long time, and as I read and read this section of Scripture, I really believe there is because verse 21 just seemed to flame up from the page in my face. I believe verse 21 is the tipping point of what was taking place in Rome that caused them to make it over that top and then just start sliding down into an immorality uh, that they couldn't stop. It says in verse 21, Because that when they knew God, they glorified him not as God, neither were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. Now, the title of the message or the proposition I have for you tonight is I want to say to you that unthankfulness is the terminal attitude of mankind. Unthankfulness is the terminal attitude of man. You understand the word terminal? Uh, When we flew in here and landed at LaGuardia, at the end of our flight was when we taxied up to the terminal. If you take a train someplace, when you get to the end of your trip, you, t- you, you pull into the terminal. When people that we know have illnesses and many times cancer is touched, so all of us have been touched by cancer personally, our family, or somebody we know. And the word we don't want to hear when they go to the doctor and have a diagnosis is that this is terminal. Because when the word terminal is used, you know what it means? It means you're not going to recover. It means it's over. It means it's a done deal. So terminal in life means the end of life as we know it. And I believe we're seeing here as far as God's blessings on a country that unthankfulness is a terminal attitude of man towards God. Now Spurgeon said, we must thank God for the mercies we have or else we will not have others. And that sounds fair, doesn't it? A pectotus, the Greek said, he is a wise man who does not grieve for the things which he has not, but rejoices for those things which he has. Talking about thankfulness here. And I, I am thankful for all the mercies that have come my way, but I'm pretty sure I'll need more. So I want to thank God for the ones that have already come my way. I want to thank God for the things I do possess. You know, some people always just got to have a newer car, a more expensive car. A better car, so to speak. They need a bigger house, a newer house. Well, you know, I drive a 2003 Impala with 2,000 miles on it, almost 103,000 miles. I love that car. See, what do you like about it? Well, one thing I like about it is it's paid for. Another thing I like about it is it runs good and it starts every time I start it. I get 30 to 31 miles a gallon on the road. Say, well, couldn't you get a newer car? Why do why am I interested in a newer car? If this one's serving my purpose, no, I'm not going to fret about getting a newer car. I'm going to thank God for the one I have. <coughs> me. We have a uh, we live in a house. Uh, it's about two thousand square feet. I realize with the apartment things here, that's probably maybe a lot of room to some people, but it's uh, less than two thirds of the room of the house we used to live in. And this house is considerably older, so we downsize and and. Um, we had to do a lot of work to bring it up and everything. And so a lot of people said, well man, I wouldn't have done that. I, just, I, I am thankful for the house that God has given us. I, I'm just thankful for that. And I have a certain number of tools. And I, I was talking to Stephen here before the service a little, and he was talking about tools at some place like Snap-on tools. Well, Snap-on is one of the best ones you can get, but it costs a lot of money. I don't have Snap-on. I have Craftsman because they're less expensive. And I don't even fret about not having snap-on tools. I'm thankful for the ones that I have because they take care of what I I need to fix. Well, I think probably in every area of life that possibly could be true. Now, the 100th Psalm, verse 4 says, Enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise. In other words, when you approach God, enter into his gates with thanksgiving and into his courts with praise, Be thankful unto him and bless his name. Isn't that wonderful? David probably expressed his appreciation to God more than any other person in the Bible. And uh, I I love reading about David. I'm, I'm glad my mom chose to name and my dad chose to name me David. If I could just have David's heart without David's sin, I think life would be good. And I'd sure like to do that. So I'd love to read about him. Now, Arthur W. Pink and most every preacher... Probably has at least one of his books or more. But he says, and I quote, Have we not more cause to praise God than to pray? Now, think about it. He says, Have we not more reason to praise God than to pray? Now, I know that you have probably heard a lot of message on praying. Now, praying is good. But praying is primarily asking, isn't it? Not every time. And by the way, prayer is not worship. Prayer is us asking God to give us something. Worship is us giving something to him. So however many times you're on your knees praying, that's good. But that's not worship. Because worship is something we have to give to God, you know, that he really wants. But now he says, don't we have more reason to praise than to pray? Well, I'd never thought about that. But if you were to ask me, well, Brother Hardy... If you were to count up all the time you spent praying and all the time you spent praising, which one do you think would be the heaviest? They wouldn't even be in the same world. Because I have asked and asked and asked and asked, and I'm probably a pretty selfish person. I'm suppose nobody else here like me, is there? That you don't ask that much. Well, I ask far more, probably, than I praised Him. But if God were to just take the things away from me that He's already given me. I would be in sad shape. I would assume that God has given me more that I didn't even think to ask for than that I did ask for because he knew that I needed it. Now, G.K. Chesterton said, and I'm quoting, he says, you say grace before meals. Now, I suppose you use that phraseology or terminology up here. In other words, when we are out someplace and we eat, then we bow our head and we thank the Lord for it. We call that saying grace. Oh, over the mill, thank God for it. Isn't that a wonderful opportunity to be a testimony? Doesn't it bless your heart, you know, when you're a restaurant and you see maybe a man and his wife and his children, they bow their head and, and just thank the Lord for that food? I remember reading a story down south, and this is years ago. And an old farmer went to town, and while he was there, he did his business, and then he went into a restaurant and, or cafe and got him some food to buy himself. And when he got his food, he bowed his head and, and he prayed. And he didn't just pray five seconds and wipe his head so people would know what he's doing. He prayed and he thanked God for it. Well, there's three or four younger guys that kind of look at it. They got to snickering and laughing and all that kind of stuff. And when the man got through praying, uh, these young hooligans, they went over, there was three of them. And they said, hey, old man. He said, yes. He said, does everybody do that where you're from? He says, no, the hogs don't. And hogs are not thankful. They're just a hog. I think it wouldn't hurt us to be thankful. I think it's a great opportunity. Now, anyway, he said, Chesterson said, you say grace before meals. And sometimes we feel like we killed a bear if we just thank the Lord for our food. That's pitiful, isn't it, for us to think that way? Now, listen to what he said. He says, all right, but I say grace before the concert. I mean, I thank God for it. I say grace before the opera. I say grace before the play. I say grace before the pantomime. I say grace before I open a book. I say grace before I sketch, before I paint, before I swim, before I box. And I say grace even before I dip my pen in the ink. Now, how are you feeling? You know, I read that and I thought, I used to think I was thankful. And I thought, you said, well, why should you be thankful for that? Are you glad you can write? Well, who gave you that ability? Or that you can walk? Or that you can do any of those things? God gave us every ability. And all the good gifts come from him, uh, from above. You know, and Seneca said, we can be thankful to a friend for a few acres of land or a little bit of money. And sure, we fall all over ourselves if someone gives us some money. And yet for the freedom and command of the whole earth and for the great benefits of our being, our life, our health, our reason, we look upon ourselves as under no obligation. In other words, we are so thankful to people who do a small amount for us and then then we don't even think about all the great things that God has done for us. So we thank them, but we don't thank Him. It's almost like He owes it to us. And I'm telling you, if He gives us what He owes us, We won't be in church. We'll be someplace else. And I think maybe the quote that kind of catches my attention most is by Francis Schaeffer. Francis Schaeffer said, The beginning of men's rebellion against God was and is the lack of a thankful heart. Thankful people don't rebel. When you're raising a family, if your sons and your daughters are thankful, they will never rebel against you but it's when they get to the point that they are unthankful that you begin to really have troubles. Now, what does verse 21 say? Because it, when they knew God. The Romans knew God. As a matter of fact, everybody knows there's a God. Now, God has revealed himself to us, first of all, in creation. Now, you don't need to turn there, but if you're not real familiar with Psalm 19, not Psalm 119, that's a book in itself, but the 19th Psalm says the heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth His handiwork. You say, well, oh yeah, we know about the heavens because we have the sunshine and the moon and the stars and things. And, I, and I'm, I'm glad for all of those. And if I start asking people what they're there for, they give all their reasons. The reason they're there, declare the glory of God. The heavens declare the glory of God. The firmament showeth His handiwork. Day and the day utter speak, night unto night with knowledge. And it says, "Listen to this: There is no language where their voice is not heard. Their line has gone out to the end of the world. You'll never go to a group of people anywhere in this earth that haven't seen the heavens and the firmament." When Livingston and Moffat went around this country years ago in sailing ships, here's what they said: Visiting those villages and. Uh, countries where they didn't even have written languages. They said they never found a village that didn't worship something. Well, what does that tell you? They know there's a higher being. You see, God wrote two books. The first one is general revelation or creation. And what does that tell us? It tells us there is a God. It tells us He's big. And it tells us He's good. But it's not enough to get you saved. That's the reason we send the missionaries out. But the truth is a missionary will never go to a group of people that does not know there's a higher being. They know that. You say, Brother Hardy, what about atheists? There are no atheists in my opinion. You say, well, how do you know that? Uh, Because of this right here for one thing. And because I knew there was a God as just a little tiny boy before you know, a lot of people would instruct me in that or whatever the case. It's just, it's just right here. And because of those villages, because of history, I, I, I know that they know there's one. You say, well, why would they say that? The most interesting thing when someone tells you an atheist, that they're an atheist, is this. What it really tells you is they cannot admit that there's a higher being because if they do, they're obligated to him. Is that not true? If there is an intelligent being, who created this world and put the laws in order. If there is, then we need to respond to him. And they don't want anybody to respond to. Now, let me let me give you this quote by J.A. and I keep your thinking caps on. This is important stuff. Now, J.A. Day said, one thing, now just one, one thing and one thing only, history teaches with certainty. Now, everything we know comes from history. We, we look back on what other people learn and they pass it on to us and we add to it and that becomes history. One thing and one thing only, history teaches with certainty. Now, if that's, if that's true, we ought to know what it is, shouldn't we? If it only teaches one thing. And here's what it says it teaches. And that is that somehow the world is built on moral foundations. And that in the long run, it goes well for the good and in the long run, it goes ill for the wicked. That is absolutely true. You mark down any nation. I don't care what nation it is, whether it's Israel or Rome or Germany or America. You mark it down. If it's a good nation and a godly nation, it will grow and it will prosper. But every time it turns sour and turns bad, it is going down the tubes. That's the reason America is going down the tubes right now. We're not the godly nation we once were. Now, history proves that, and you, can't argue. you can argue if you want to, but if you are arguing with it, you're not academically honest. What are you going to do with a great truth like that? That somehow the world is built on moral foundations. And by the way, morals don't come from rocks. Rock, morals come from an intelligent being. A rock will never tell you this is right and that's wrong. Plant life will never tell you that. Intelligent design tells you that that there are things are right or wrong. Now, our president said, <clears throat> it is the duty of nations as well as of men to own their dependence upon the overruling power of God, to confess their sins and transgressions in humble sorrow, yet with assured hope that genuine repentance will lead to mercy and pardon and to recognize the sublime truth announced in the Scriptures, and listen to this, and proven by all history, That those nations are blessed whose God is the Lord. Now, that's a president of America that said that, Abraham Lincoln. Is that different than what some of our recent presidents might say? Do you understand why we're in the trouble we're in? You say, we asked because of that leadership. No, he had to be voted in. And Christian people did that. Now, I'm not down on the man... But I am going to have to vote according to godliness as best I can. But we're just about the place in America where we're voting for the, less, the lesser evil rather than someone who we know will lead our country uh, the way it needs to be. <laughs> so God's revealed Himself in creation. God's revealed Himself in history. But God has re- revealed Himself in personification, hasn't He? You say, what do you mean by personification? Just look at people. We're made in His image. We're a living proof of God ourselves. Let me ask you this question. Can you see the holiness of God in a paved road or a washing machine? Now think. Who's been on the earth longer, men or mountain goats? Nobody read Genesis yet? The goats were here first, okay? You say, "Why?" that really sounds dumb. Well, somebody's here from Colorado. I remember talking to him this morning. I love Colorado. I love the mountains. You go out there and see those big mountains and how they come down and all. You get about halfway down those big mountains and there's a niche in the road and you're cruising along there at 75 miles an hour. Now, I think some of y'all probably thought that road was always there, but it wasn't. Can you imagine what it was like the first time those wagons went across there and and those you know, cowboys and stuff trying to get those stones out of the ways and build it? And now we've got that road. You say, uh, what kind of proof is that? Well, why didn't the billy goats build a road? They still get up there the same way they always did. Because they're not made in God's image. You know what an imagination is? There never was a car till someone imagined it. There was never a washing machine till someone imagined it. As a matter of fact, the Bible talks about their imagination right here in verse 21. Because when they knew God, they glorified Him not as God, neither were thankful. And it became vain in their imaginations, and their foolish heart was darkened. We're made in His image. Think about it. Image a nation. They now have computers. And, they, and just recently in the Associated Press, they said, We have computers now that can beat men in chess or anything else. The only thing that can't beat a man is, is they can't create. Because they're not made like the Creator. Horses have been here longer than us too. We've got tons of them down in Oklahoma. And pardon my grammar, but ain't nary one of them ever built a barn. Now I think, this is real truth. They're the ones that use it. I don't live in a barn. But they're never going to come up and someone says, we're just a higher degrees of species. Give me a break. We don't even get close to each other because we've been made in the image of God. And so God proves himself. They knew there was a God because of creation, history, and personification. But the Romans didn't value God. It says because of when they knew God, they glorified him not as God. Now, primarily emphasizing being thankful because if you're not thankful, even if you understand glorification, you still won't do it. You know, glory is a manifestation of something that is valuable. We translate doxa, the word doxa, glory, but the chief idea must ever be on the value that produces the glory. For instance, ladies will have more jewelry than men. Uh, Jewelry is meant to accent something that's already beautiful, but it accents it to maybe make it more beautiful. It's never meant to distract. That's the reason the Bible says don't use but so much of it. Say, why don't men use it? We don't have anything to accent, so there's no use of men having any jewelry. And you go by a jewelry store, and, and I love it. You know, you're maybe walking by outside, and they got these bright lights shining these diamonds, and then all these colors, these prisms uh, come out of there. It is just beautiful. And you know, if I had a big diamond, and you would say to me, I just love to have all that glitter, I say, You can have the glitter, but you can't have the diamond. But the point is, the glitter only indicates the value that produces the glitter. And the Bible says one reason that we live is to glorify God. As a matter of fact, in Matthew chapter 5, it talks about us being salt and light and it says, No man lights a candle and puts it under a basket, under a bushel basket. But no, and, and like a city, it's on a hill. He said, Let your light so shine and your good works so you can glorify your Father which is in heaven. And we're supposed to live the kind of Christian life and love people and care for people and do for people that shows the value of God. And some people who are supposed to be Christians, you wouldn't think that they valued God very highly. I'm thinking now about Moses, and I mentioned it to the ladies. And uh, Moses, when he became of age, would have become the next Pharaoh. And he'd had all the riches of Egypt. But he said... He esteemed the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt. I'm thinking, how many people would make that kind of decision today? Now, because when they knew God, verse 21, they glorified Him not as God and they were thankful, but became vain in their imaginations. What does vain mean? Vain means empty. When the imagination becomes empty. Did you know that America used to be probably, I mean, I mean, we had a lot of countries that did it, but America was the country to create. Our good friends in Japan were not creators primarily of things. We were, but they could take what we made and made it better, but we, we were creators. Our imagination, we were able to imagine things. Something that comes to my mind is Boeing Aircraft Company in our country Uh, About 11 or 12 years ago, I don't remember the exact dates now, uh, the two major manufacturers of airplanes in in this world are Airbus in Europe and Boeing aircraft in Seattle, Washington, and with the plants throughout the United States of America. And they came up with two different philosophies. Airbus said, we're going to build a huge plane that seats about 800 people. And Boeing said, we don't think that's the future Uh, we're going to build a composite plane. A composite plane doesn't have metal in it primarily. It's much lighter than a regular plane. It's much more efficient than another plane. In other words, it is the plane of tomorrow. Well, that plane was supposed to be flying in about five years after that, which would have been six years ago or something like that. And and an Airbus kind of got at odds, and they went on kind of a strike, as you'd call it, and they could completely quit doing anything for about two years. And I wasn't happy about their troubles, but I couldn't help but saying, yes, I'm All-American, you know. Come on, Boeing. They're not doing anything now. Get those planes out, and we'll sell every nation on earth a Boeing airplane. But they didn't get it done. It's the Dreamliner, the 787. I'm sure many of you have heard of it. Eleven years now, it still doesn't fly. Airbus got theirs together in two years and they've been selling those 800 passenger Airbuses ever since then. Vain or empty in their imaginations. Doesn't it seem logical to you if the ability we have to create and make comes because we're in the image of our creator that the more we live in his image the better job we're going to do and the more we're out of it the worse. Do you know where America would be in World War II if in 11 years we couldn't turn out a new airplane? Are you thinking would be history? I'm just saying the lot that's happening in America now is because right here in verse twenty one we haven't glorified God, and we haven't thanked him like we should. Now Sarah Ben Brethnick said, "You simply will not be the same person two months from now after you consciously give thanks each day for the abundance that exists in your life, and you will have set in motion an ancient spiritual law. That the more you have and are grateful for, the more that will be given you. You know, when this jumped out at me, it changed my prayer life. Now, I say, well, what is your prayer life? Well, when I wake up in the morning before I ever get out of the bed, as soon as I have consciousness, I kind of lie in my bed for a moment. and I say, Lord, thank you for who you are and what you are. I've done that for years and years and years. I wouldn't want to change him. He can't get any better. I'm thankful for who and what he is. But then, when I start my regular prayer time, I've always said, "Lord, I pray that you'd be with Grace today and bless her." And I, think, I pray, Lord, you'd be with my son and my daughter-in-law, my grandkids, and then I, and I geographically pray for preachers and so forth. But I changed all that just a little bit. You say, "How did you change it?" And if you'll ask my wife, we both changed it. And I asked her one day, "I said, Honey, do I just think things are better for us, or are they really? Has God started stepping up His care for us?" And she said, "Absolutely, He has." Here's what I did. It's just real little. Instead of just saying, Lord, be with grace, I said, Lord, thank you for grace. Thank you for my wife. She's a godly woman, and I'm thankful. Lord, thank you for my son, Wayne. He's a godly man, pastor of church, and I thank you for a godly daughter-in-law, and I thank you for those grandchildren. They love to be on the bus routes on Saturday. Thank you. You, you see, the only change you made was to insert thank you into those people's lives. That's it. That's all I did. Do you think people are as thankful as they should be? Now, let me ask you a question. How much does the word thank you cost you? Isn't it amazing, isn't it? But we still, many times, don't want to do it. Thank the Lord. When I was in the Navy... We lived in Charleston, South Carolina. We went to a church called Hanahan Baptist Church. The pastor's name was Hobson Wolf. And he was our pastor for about three years. And after I got out of the Navy, we came back to Texas, and I worked at Bell Helicopter that year. And I told my wife one day, I said, "Hun, I don't think we ever thanked Brother Wolf properly for being our pastor. And she said, well, you want to write him a letter? I said, No. She said, do you want to call him on the phone? I said, no. I think we need to go thank him. She said, do you remember it's 1,200 miles to Charleston? I said, I do. Just get it on the calendar. We got it on the calendar a few months later. We drove out to Charleston. We went to Brother Wolf's house. We knocked on the door, and he came to the door. I can't talk like him. I mean, he's got a southern brogue like you can't believe Lord, have mercy. You kids get in this here house. Something like that. So we went in and we sat down. And, and he said, now, what brings you kids out here? And by the way, nobody's called his kids for years. If you want to, it'll be all right. It won't offend us. But even... What brings you kids out here? And I said, Brother Wolf, Grace and I drove out here to thank you for faithfully preaching the Word of God does for three years. And he started talking about something else for about three or four or five minutes. And he said, now what brings you kids out here? That's the second time. I said, well, Brother Wolf, um, Grace and I drove out here to thank you for faithfully preaching the Word of God. We just really grew. I mean, we needed that. And and you just didn't tell stories and you told us what we needed to hear. You faithfully preached the book and I want to thank you for it. My wife's sitting here right now. God's my witness. I put my hand on the Bible. The third time he started talking about something else, and the third time he said, Now, what brings you kids out here? I said, Brother Wolf, look at me. And he looked right at me. I said, We drove 1,200 miles to tell you thank you for preaching the Word of God to us. And the tears welled up in his eyes. He didn't actually cry, but the tears welled up in his eyes. And so we visited a little while longer and left. And the next day we came back and saw him again and we drove home. And it wasn't too long after that we got word because he was older. Brother Wolf had gone home to be with the Lord. Now if you come up to my wife night and night and say, what's the best trip y'all ever took in your whole life? <laughs> i say, well, it was a trip out to Charleston, South Carolina to tell a preacher named Hobson Wolf, thank you for preaching the word of God to me. Now, here's my last thought for tonight. And please listen. If tonight, if this very night, God takes everything from you that you haven't thanked Him for, what are you going to have left? Let's all stand. Lord, thank you now, thank you, thank you for your goodness. Thank you again to to be able to be in this church with these good people. I thank you for that. But now, Lord, as we come to an invitation time and prayer time, I wonder if there are others here like me who would say, "Why, why haven't I been more thankful? The blessings, the Bible explains to me, there's so much that comes. And then there's songs like, count your many blessings, name them one by one. And I never could have done that. There are too many. I can't can't count them all. And Lord, I've taken so many of them for granted. And I don't mean to have done that. But there might be some people here tonight that would say, Lord, this is going to change. I'm so grateful and thankful for all that you've done. And from this night on, I'm going to be thankful. And Lord, even tonight, one of our testimonies before the service was about that very thing, realizing how blessings come and we don't even recognize them and don't thank you for them. So Lord, tonight, if we need to make a decision in that area in our lives and to become more thankful people, God, deliver us from the attitude the Romans had. Deliver us from the attitude that many Americans have. That somebody owes them something. Nobody owes us anything. Help us to be grateful for what comes our way. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Well, the altars are open and we're going to have a verse of invitation. If you would need to come tonight, I don't know.